Okay, Jesus teaches on the demonic. Uh, page 51. A divided kingdom falls. Um, it says, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so the mute man spoke and saw. And all the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any king divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. What I wanted to just illustrate here is, again, as you look back at Genesis, the first activity of the devil was to try to separate people from God. And in the moment that he was successful at that, the people turned against each other. Adam immediately started accusing the woman of being his problem, and he even accused God of giving him the woman. You know, So um, that's the uh, devil's tactic. He looks for things to divide. And um, it's important to know, because when you're looking for demonic things or demonic influence, wherever there's division... Um, there's going to be some kind of demonic element involved. There is going to be. That is what the devil does. He seeks to divide. And there's sometimes when you're dealing with the demonic, what you have to do, you know, maybe you're right in the middle of the situation. You know, here's the situation. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven elements, and you're right smack in the middle of it, right there. And you can't see anything because you're surrounded by it. And sometimes what you have to do is you have to pull yourself out a little bit. And you have to look from a distance and see the larger situation. Sometimes you have to have outside people come in and say, could you help us look at the situation we're in? And then you begin to see that there is some demonic element. Or you begin to see that when looked at from a distance... Some of, the, some of the issues involved are not to die for, you know? They're not the hills you want to die on. And you begin to get proactive about putting people in the hands of God. You know, I always, uh, I, Melody, she's so interesting here, so I get, I'm going to use her right now. But when she first showed up into my life, her and her, her hubby, uh, Gavin, showed up. It was at, a, um, it was at a, uh, an Alpha uh, event, and uh, Melody was not a believer at that point in Jesus. And she was sort of on the, a, a journey of searching. And uh, we go around the circle of this group, eh? And, um, and uh, so, where are you at? Who are you, you know, who, where are you from? Who are you at? You know, who, who are you? Whatever. Anyway, Melody identifies herself, and she says where she's at in this journey. And I had one lady in this group that she was just like, she like grabs her Bible and flips it open, and she's ready to... <clears throat> tell Melody where she ought to be at, right? And I'm going, calm down, calm down. <sighs> Fascinating, Melody. Thank you for sharing and all that kind of stuff, right? And, uh, you know, um, my friend, all she could see was where Melody was at, and she just wanted to fix everything, eh? Got to fix those things. Got to just go after that stuff. Got to make everything all right. Forget that noise. Sometimes you just have to pull back, and you have to let people be on the journey where God has them. Anyway, Melody and Gavin, they kept hanging out, and we apparently weren't that weird. Or maybe we were weird enough, just weird enough that they felt comfortable. I don't know. They kept hanging out with us and exploring who Jesus was. And the day came when she said, you know, I want to go with Jesus. And uh, it was an amazing thing. But sometimes that's what you have to do. You know, you have to pull back a little bit from a situation, and you have to trust God. Um, the enemy will jump on anything to divide a couple, to divide a family, to, to divide a church community, to divide a business. He specializes in division because when he divides people, they set up camps over here, right? And then they got to start over. And then he divides them again. And then they set up another couple of camps over here and they start over again. And then they start over again and they start over. And you're always starting over again. And you can never actually be who God has made you to be. Or accomplish what God calls you to accomplish. Because you're always being split and divided. A divided kingdom falls and the devil seeks to divide the kingdom. 
Well, here's another teaching of Jesus. That dealing with the demonic is a mark of the kingdom. The next verse in that Matthew 12 passage says, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You understand that the power of Satan is destroyed by a superior power. It's the kingdom of God. And so a part of the mark of the kingdom being fully functional in a place or in a group of people includes the casting out of demons. It includes, not, not that, you know, how do you put it? Not that you really schedule that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Okay, on Tuesday we're casting out demons. We're, you know, that's not really what I'm talking about. But when the, when the necessity is there, it's done. Because demons only come out by the power of God. And we talked earlier on about how the kingdom is power. Okay. Binding the strong man, the place of deliverance in the process of evangelism. You know, sometimes uh, a little bit of spiritual warfare or a little bit of deliverance prayer can be very helpful in seeing someone come to Christ. Remember how I told you about the young lady in my alpha group uh, uh, on Friday night here, last night. And, and she couldn't hear, she couldn't understand what was going on in the teaching. Would you like to? Because I think God's got his hand on your life. And she says, yeah, I really would. You know, okay, can I pray for you? Sure. And uh, I said, okay, Lord, in Jesus' name, whatever is hindering her from hearing your word, I bind its power and command it to leave her alone so she can hear. And after that, she, she could hear. Everything made sense. So sometimes you have to bind the strong man. Listen to this. How can anyone enter the strong man's house? You know who the strong man is? The strong man's the devil. How can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? Then he will plunder the house. Okay, so here's the house. Guess who the house is? Oop. Weird looking person that is. There we go. There's the house. There's the strong man. The strong man, he's busy plugging this guy's ears. He's also got arms growing out of his head. Plugging this guy's ears. When we prayed for this young lady, we said, we bind you, strong man, in Jesus' name. Stop that. Let her hear. And then, when she was able to hear the gospel, God plundered the house. God took ownership. God set her free. She became God's possession. That's what God wants to do. He wants to plunder. A friend of mine does ministry over in the, the Middle East, and, and he's got a very interesting slogan. He says, plundering hell to populate heaven. <laughs> okay, because that's what he's doing. He's taking back what the devil stole. So sometimes, you know, when you pray, you'll pray a binding prayer. You'll say, Lord, this person is sensing your, your leading soul. Flip the top of the next page, page 52. This is how I pray. I bind a part of the enemy to block this person from hearing your word. Then you share what is going on. You talk with a the person. Then you lead in repentance prayer if they're possible, if they're ready, or do more teaching or whatever if they're not. But when they're ready, lead in repentance prayer, and then you expulse the demonic. You command them to go. We were in a place here a little while ago, and a guy came in, um, and... Uh, and uh, Oh, we were, it was a school. And I was doing a staff training for a group of people at a, at a boarding school. And uh, one of the guys, we gathered together, one of the guys was out sick. And just as we got into our meeting, uh, suddenly he comes staggering in the door, like literally staggering in the door. Oh, props himself up. He's just like looking like death warmed over. And I said, are you okay? Yeah, but I, I just feel like i got to be here. I said, oh, what, like when did this happen? When, when did the sickness hit you? Just this afternoon, I'm starting to perk up already, eh? Because our team just arrived on campus that afternoon. Really? When this afternoon? Oh, about, uh, about 2 o'clock. Well, 2 o'clock would be about the time we arrived on campus. I'm getting all excited now, eh? And he sits down, plonk, sticks himself between two of the other staff members, and, uh, and he just sort of slumps down. And I look at him, and I'm like... God's given me this, this nudging. And I just said to him, I said, you have some stuff you need to give to Jesus, don't you? And he started to weep. I get out of my chair, and I reached over and I touched him. 
And as soon as I touched his knee, he's, he's sitting down, sort of slumped over, weeping. As soon as I touched his knee, he just ramrod stiff, and he starts screaming at the top of his lungs. And I'm going like, whoa, I rebuke that. In Jesus' name, I bind his power in Jesus' name. And he just lays there, bored stiff, propped up the top of the couch, is on his shoulders, his heels are on the floor, and he's just ramrod stiff. And I'm going, okay. And then one of my team members, God gave a gift of discernment to, and she just reaches over my shoulder and she says, it's a spirit of anger. Hmm. I said, who do you got to forgive? Well, he screams. I said, I rebuke that. Stop that in Jesus' name. I want to talk to this man. And he sort of slumps over a bit. He starts to unbend or bend a little bit. I said, who do you have to forgive? Are you ready to forgive them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, pray with me. And we prayed, dear Jesus, I confess and renounce my hatred for this person, these people. I'm ready to forgive them. I put, you, put them in your hands. I renounce this uh, spirit that is uh, tormenting me in Jesus' name. Amen. And I said, now, I rebuke you, spirit of unforgiveness. I command you, you let this man go. And he screams and slumps, and that was it. Come, Holy Spirit, take your place. <laughs> And we had this amazing, amazing experience. Anyway, you know where I saw him next? We finished our little meeting, and you know where I found him next? He was up in a staff room telling the secretary, I just had a demon cast out of me. Isn't this really cool? And she's like huddled up against the firewall. <laughs> Please leave me alone now, you know. <laughs> oh, shoot. That was just funny. But with him, when he came in and he sat down, again, it struck me right away that he had begun to manifest when we came on campus. We came to do God's work. Uh, the enemy didn't want him here, want him there, tried to block him. He fought his way into the room, and uh, we just uh, took authority, bound the enemy that was trying to you know, hinder him from hearing the message of the gospel he needed to hear, from entering the prayer time he needed to hear. The enemy was hindering him with all the screaming. Bind that power. Stop that in Jesus' name. Can you hear me? I want to talk to you. Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Okay, are you ready to forgive? We explained what was going on. We led him in repentance prayer. We told the demon to leave. So, Jesus teaches as we go on in this passage. What happens when an unclean spirit comes back? Because an unclean spirit can come back. And oftentimes, unclean spirits do come back. So, basically, what happens is, there's the door. You kick him out here. He wanders around the block, and he comes back, and he says, I want to come back in here. This is what the scripture says. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. Now, you have to understand that there were exorcists back in Jesus' day. But they didn't do exorcisms in the name of Jesus or in the name of God. They, they just simply used their, their rituals and stuff to try to cast out evil spirits. And apparently, they were fairly successful to an extent. How? We're not explained. How, we're, it doesn't explain how. But Jesus says he's talking to Jewish uh, people, and he's talking specifically to Jewish exorcists. He says, your people, uh, you cast out demons. There's actually a story in Acts called the, about the sons of Siva, which are Jewish exorcists, who try to cast out demons, and, and that particular story shows how the experience was not a particularly good one for them. Anyway, apparently they cast out demons, but if this house is the person's life, they don't fill the house with anything. They leave the house empty because they don't lay the personal faith foundation with regard to Jesus. They leave the house empty. The demon wanders around, finds seven other buddies, and goes back in and makes the guy worse at the end than at the first. And that's why for me, when we do deliverance work, I always go back to the relationship with Jesus. If we're going to do this kind of prayer, are you willing to put yourself in the hands of Jesus? Because if you're not, I'm not praying this kind of prayer with you. If you're willing to put yourself in the hands of Jesus, because I don't want to leave the house empty. You know, my clairvoyant salmon fisherman, I could have I stopped with him and, you know, done some prayer with him, and, uh, and, and yet he was not willing to, be, to give himself into the hands of Jesus and walk with Jesus. So what do I do? I leave the house empty. So for me, when we do deliverance work with people, 
We are all taught to, at the, at the time of rebuking the enemy, we immediately then follow that up with a prayer of, Dear Jesus, take your place. Lord Holy Spirit, come and fill the house. I'm not leaving the house empty. We're going to fill the house. And guess what? The demons do come back. Uh, I had one lady, she came for prayer. She had a spirit of control, and she renounced that spirit of control. And uh, then she came back to me the next day, and she said, um, and I told her, I said, if this comes back, the way you'll know that it comes back is the old symptoms and the old desires will come with it. See, Satan doesn't, just doesn't walk up in your door and say, Hi, remember me? I'm the demon that was cast out of you yesterday, and I'm back. Would you open the door and let me in? He doesn't do that. He comes back and he goes, See this? You like this? Remember this? Whoa. And he offers you the temptation. He brings back the lust or the yearning or the, or the, the old activity, and you, he goes, you Remember what this was like? Oh, was this good? Right? And so you go like, oh, man, he's back. Yeah, he is back. But what are you going to do? You're going to stand, according to Ephesians 6. You're going to say, dear Jesus, I'm standing in your presence. The enemy can't come back. And the enemy will look at you and go, dang, they know. And he will leave them. I, uh, myself, was delivered from an addiction, a spirit of addiction, uh, to uh, cigarettes. I was a... a, uh, fairly hardcore smoker for a number of years, and um, tried to quit, couldn't quit. Finally, the Lord set me free, um, and um, still to this day, about once a year, I have a lust for a cigarette. I'll be in a place, I'll get a whiff of something, and I'll just get this, oh, right? I got this smoke, I just want the smoke. And uh, I've learned. Now, I recognize you, devil. The Lord rebukes you because the blood of Jesus is between me and you. So hit the road. And I could just see him just checking because he does. He comes back to check. That's why Galatians 5, uh, 1 says, it's for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm. Don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. Can you submit again? Yes, you can submit again. What happens if you submit again? Well, you know what? The second time around, you're history. You know what I mean? You're gone. No, I'm kidding you. Then we have to go back to Jesus. We submit again to him, and he cleans us up, and he sets us free, and we get to walk it out. Anyway, but you gradually learn. You learn that when the devil comes back, when he brings his old temptations and his old lusts back, you can look at him and say, you know what? The blood of Jesus I put between me and you, and you can't come back, so hit the road. And you take your stand, not so much against the devil, but you take your stand in Jesus. Let's see here. See, if this suit is Jesus, you want to take your stand in Jesus, you know what I mean? What is this suit for? It's to help you work and function in a toxic environment safely. But you don't just use the suit to visit the environment. Oh, I finally got here. I got into this place. Oh, great. And then peel the suit off. You stay in the suit. You know what I mean? So when you're in Jesus, stay in the suit. Stay hidden in him. This is what Ephesians means when Paul says, I take my stand. He means stay in the suit. So, all right. They do come back. Stay in a suit. You know? Alrighty. The uniqueness of Jesus. Um, this is huge. Um, we minister out of relationship with Jesus the Christ. So all authority comes from him. Matthew 28, 18. Uh, what about other gods? Jeremiah 16, 20. Remember. You know, again, we live in a culture that says all gods are just one way to the God. You know what I mean? Jesus didn't teach this. And so, you know, and, you know, I've talked to stuff before, and sometimes people get a little offended, and they say, what are you saying about my God? What are you saying about me? I'm saying nothing about you. I'm saying this is what, the, what, what God's word says. So, and you have to decide yourself what you do with it. What about other gods? Jeremiah 16.20 says, can man make gods for himself? You know, in humanity, there's a hunger to worship something. 
We know that we are not gods somehow. We need an object of worship. And so all around the world, people have been making gods for decades and years and thousands of years. Can man make gods for himself, Jeremiah asks, yet they are not gods. This is, the, this is God speaking through Jeremiah. What, is, what does Paul have to say about other gods? He says they are demons. No, but I say to you, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Why would demons, I mean, why would demons take the form of other gods? Well, simply put, anything to distract your worship from Jesus. Anything to separate you from the one true God. Anything to keep you away from the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes but through Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And yet, Jesus offers himself to everyone. One name under heaven, it says there's salvation in no one else. No other name under heaven. You know, the reason I'm, I, I pulled these passages out is because when you're doing work with regard to the demonic, you, if you don't stand in Jesus, you can get badly hurt. Badly hurt. Uh, if, you, if you try to take this stuff on, there was a shame and uh, we got called into a place to do prayers um, and uh, there had been uh, a shaman go in ahead of us to do prayers in this place where there were evil spirits. And um, um, he had gone in and he had uh, practiced his craft in that place. And uh, then he went home and, and he just about died. He spent the next two weeks on the verge of death. Um, and when they phoned him up and they said, the spirits are back, he said, phone a priest. He says, I ain't coming back there. I thought it was interesting. The shaman said, phone a priest. He was pointed them toward the Christian God. He says, I ain't coming back there. That thing just about killed me. So you want to be careful. And that's why, again, when you get into spiritual warfare, when you get into deliverance stuff, you very quickly end up realizing that, you know, the only way to function in this realm is in the name of Jesus. So this is for safety's sake. Jesus says, um, in Mark 16, these signs will accompany those who will believe. In my name, they will cast out demon. They will speak with new tongues, etc., etc., etc. So, can believers become demonized? These some some uh, frequently asked questions. Yes. The short response is yes. Remember the picture of the guy, you know, with the demon hanging onto his ankle, or the guy with the demon hanging onto his neck. The other picture I like to describe. You remember in the old days? You talk about addiction. Says. Like people, you know, oh, I've got the monkey on my back, right? The monkey's got four, two sets of hands. He's got four hands. You know, with my two hands, I can pry two off, but he's hanging on to me with the other two. And when I let go like this, the other two grab a hold of me again. You know, it, it, it's hard to get a monkey off your back, especially a real determined one. So we need help. That's the way I like to describe that. It's, it's called oppression. Can, can believers become demonically influenced? Yes, they can. And many believers, if you read Neil Anderson, uh, quite famous through his Bondage Breaker series, I think the statistics that he gave, he says, on any given Sunday morning, 65% of people in a church are not free from demonic influences. Get out. Really? I, I agree with him. So, the depth of surrender to the Spirit of Jesus equals the depth of freedom in a person or community's life. That surrender means renouncing your self-centeredness through repentance and belief. Repentance and belief is a sur surrender process. So Peter says, beware. We already looked at that passage, 1 Peter 5-9. Uh, Paul tells believers in Galatians 5, one not to be re-enslaved. We, we've looked at that as well. Paul warns believers to stand in Ephesians 6, 10-14. I want to just... Uh, talk to you briefly about the spiritual armor at this point. What does it mean to stand? Okay. Stand is this. There's all this armor. And this is Roman armor. Um, starts with the belt. Put on the belt of truth. Belt of truth is that piece of armor upon which everything else was hung. It was around here, protected a guts, protected a groin. Um, I don't know if that has any, any uh, element to it, but it is the core piece that everything else is tied to. And it's truth. 
Uh, then we had, let's see here. There we go. Do the six pack or the 18 pack or whatever it was. Um, and then we got the helmet of salvation, right? Helmet of salvation like that. Helmet of salvation. What else? Oh, yeah. The boots. Preparation of gospel of peace. This guy's got big feet. We'll give him big feet. Big old hobnail boots. Oh, let's go big old thighs, calves. Now we got uh, shield. And then we got the sword. There we go. <laughs> There's our armor. Hey, that's not bad, actually. The last guy looked like he had serious deformities last time I did that. Anyway, the, the armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God. So that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, uh, but against the powers, the worldly forces of the darkness. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so you may be able to resist in the evil day, having stun, done everything to stand firm. We're going to go forward now into verses uh, 15 to 17, where he just simply describes this armor. And then I just want to unpack this armor a little bit for you. The truth. Can anyone tell me who the truth is? John 14, right? The truth is Jesus. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of Jesus. Uh, he leads us into all truth. The truth sets us free. This is the truth. So Jesus shows us the truth, not only about himself, but about ourselves as well. Our need for him. When we take our stand in the truth, we renounce the deceit of the evil one. Well, uh, righteousness, uh, Romans 3. There's a new righteousness, it says, has come down from heaven. <clears throat> it's received by faith. It's the righteousness of Christ. What that means is, is when we say yes to Jesus, we simply receive the forgiveness of sins that he gives it says it washes us from the guilt that we have and our hearts can no longer condemn us. And then the righteousness of Christ protects us from the condemnation of the evil one. Now, I remember hearing a preacher one time say, you know, all this armor is forward looking. So when you're moving forward, you know, it's effective. But if you retreat, it's not effective. You're wide open on the back. That's actually not true. When you're moving forward, it's effective. But guess what? Roman armor covered your back as well. Uh, and besides, God doesn't say, as long as you advance, I'll protect you. And as soon as you turn tail, I'm going to abandon you. He doesn't say that. He says, even if you're unfaithful to me, I can't be unfaithful to you. I will protect you. And this is one of the things that somebody who trusts in God uh, takes a stand in. And this is what, uh, uh, let's see here, the boots, the boots of preparation of the gospel of peace. Remember somebody telling me that, you know, they were winged boots. They're not winged boots. <laughs> winged boots goes back to some weird Greek mythology thing. Uh, these are Roman soldiers. They didn't have wings on their boots. They walked wherever they walked. They had big hobnails in the bottom. So when they stood shoulder to shoulder and somebody was charging them, they dig in, boom, and they would stand because they wouldn't be sliding around. They had a firm footing. When you have a firm footing down here, you can focus on what you need to do up here. So, uh, the boots of the gospel of peace. Colossians 1.20 says that on the cross, Jesus made peace between us and God. When you're at peace with somebody, anyone here ever been in a home where there's no peace? It's not a safe place. There's violence. You never know what's going to happen. You can't rest, can you? You can't focus on just on, on living your life. You're always on the defensive. Well, what God did when he made peace on the cross, he says, I ain't, I'm not mad at you. I've paid for your sin. You're at peace with me. Because you're at peace with me, you have a firm footing. You take your stand in the cross, in what I did on the cross, and you don't have to worry. You can now move forward with the life that I've prepared for you. It prepares us for what lies ahead, that peace. We stand in his peace. So the shield of faith. Oh no, let's go helmet of righteousness or helmet of salvation. 
Um, helmet of salvation. Uh, two, core, ten, five, um, Romans, twelve, uh, one and two, and there's another one in Corinthians. Anyway, helmet of salvation literally means to be delivered from your old way of thinking. You know, oftentimes we think about, we take every thought captive to Christ, and we only think one particular thought. But in that 2 Corinthians passage, it says, we tear down vain philosophies, we tear down strongholds, vain philosophies, we bring those thoughts captive to Christ. The helmet of salvation literally means to be delivered from the old way of thinking. Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says, offer your bodies a living sacrifice. It says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It means you're not just giving God individual thoughts. You're giving him the way that you think completely. You have changed in the way you think. Right? You have. I've known you before. Skeptical. And now something's changing. Because God's doing something. He's delivering you from the way you're thinking. You're challenging the old paradigms and you're going, hold it. The way I came up, brought up thinking doesn't fit the bio. It doesn't fit what God tells me in his word. God, you've got to change me. People, we, we go back to the way that we are trained to think. And so we offer our thoughts to God and we say, Lord, let me have the mind of Christ. I don't want to think the way I think anymore. Okay. Now we, uh, what else do we do? Oh yeah. Now we look at the shield of faith. And 1 Peter chapter 1 says we are shielded by the power of God through faith. It means, you know what? Lord, I can't do this myself. I cast myself on your mercy. I'm ready for you to protect me and take care of me. I belong to you, Jesus. And as we cast ourselves upon his mercy, it says he protects us. He shields us over and so when the devil comes at us, we can say, you know what? In the presence of my enemies, he set a table for me. Under the shadow of his wings, Psalm 91, I abide and he will protect me and it will not come unto me. Dear Lord, in this place, I belong to you and he protects us. And then, the sword of the Holy Spirit, the word of God, says it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Cutting to the very division of soul, spirit, joint, marrow. It lays us bare before him to whom we give account. This is Hebrews 4, 12 and following. So what this does, it says this word. Have you ever been in you know, a church service maybe, or you're listening to the Bible, and something that is said just goes, ooh, jeepers. Cut me right in the heart. Just, just nailed me hard, eh? Anyone? That is the word of God. See? Word of God, there's two words in Greek that are used for the word of God. One is logos, and it's a noun, and it means, the, the, it means two, two things. It means the Bible, which is the written word. Uh, it's the paper and the ink. That is the Bible. It's a noun. It's a thing. The written word. The second one it refers to is Jesus, which is the incarnate word. And Jesus is talked about as God's word made flesh. It's basically Jesus who, basically God who said, I love them and I can't speak it well enough. I'm going to show them. Wah! And he just manifested himself as Jesus and gave himself on the cross. He was the word with skin and bones on. He is that kind of expression. It too is a noun. But in Hebrews 4, there's another word, and it's this. It's rhema. Uh, rhema. And it is what, in the Greek, these are Greek words, eh? In the Greek, this is a noun, Bible, Jesus. You know which one it's being talked about by the context of the statement. This is a verb. It's a, it's a verbal noun. And uh, what it means is, the living, active word. <laughs> so, this is a sword, as long as it sits here. But when it's flashing and in action and being used, it's a verbal noun. It's an active thing. Eh? Same thing with this word. This, if the Holy Spirit does, takes a hold of this, he turns it into this. 
It's the Spirit of God who reaches into the pages of your Bible when you're doing your devotions, picks that word off the page and punches it through to your heart and says, pay attention to this because I'm going to do something in you. All right, you know. Um, that's what he says here. Now, Hebrews 4, it goes on to say, it says, this word, this sword, pierces to the very division of soul, spirit, joint, marrow. It opens us up and lays us bare in the presence of him to, with whom we have account, to whom we give account. That means it exposes us before God. Anyone here? Uh, again, you ever, uh, you ever look at yourself in a mirror naked? Yeah. You ever do it publicly? No. Okay. I shared a little bit about, I said, you know, if you stood before God naked, that's what he's saying. You're standing before him naked. You're standing before him unclothed. You're standing before him revealed. So somebody walked out of one of these sessions one time and they came back and they said, okay, I did it. What do you mean you did it? What do you mean you did what, what? Well, I went and I got naked before God. <laughs> okay. Um, yep, I went into a room. I said, God, I went into a room, um, sat down. I was having my devotions and I felt like God said to me, will you be naked before me? Oh, that's weird, man. Of course I don't want to do that. It suddenly became very self-conscious. What are you hiding from me? Because you know what? You are hiding from me. So this person said, okay, God, I'll get naked before you. They locked the door, stripped down, and stood in front of God and said, here I am, God. And had this amazing experience of how God was pleased with them. Pleased to receive them as they are, not as they presented themselves. You hear what I'm saying? This is what happens when we deal with the demonic. The, the hidden things, the places where the devil has to attack us and accuse us, this word lays us bare in his presence. And the scripture goes on to say in that chapter, at the end of Hebrews 4, uh, it says, and it prepares us to come before him boldly with confidence, to come before the throne of grace with confidence that we will receive the mercy and grace that we have need of. One of the most difficult things in, in gaining freedom is to be exposed because we tend to cover things up. But God says, no, I will expose you. And oftentimes people aren't ready to be free until they're ready to be exposed. So people come and we go through a confession. And I say, okay, what did you do? I can't say it. Okay, well, I'll come back when you can. They come back, okay, I'm ready to say it. And they get free. John 3, 20, 18 to 21, talks about bringing yourself into the light. And when you bring yourself into the light, the light destroys the darkness. John 1, 5. Jesus himself, in Luke 4, was regularly attacked vigorously, regularly and vigorously by the devil. It says, Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days. And Probably most of you know the story of how Jesus was attacked or tempted three times in the by the devil uh, over that 40-day period in the wilderness. And what the devil was trying to get Jesus to do was to do exactly what he got Adam and Eve to do. Step out, take your calling, do it in your own strength. And Jesus said, no. I'm in the hands of my Father. That's where I'm staying. And, uh, you know, some people think, well, you know, this was just sort of a ceremonial thing. The devil didn't actually have any chance of tripping Jesus up. You know what? The devil was doing all he could do, and Jesus could have made the choice to be tripped up. He didn't, thank God. He stood. But the devil was not, did not come at him and, and go like, oh, I guess I better do my ritualistic temptations of Jesus. Here you go, Jesus, one, two, and three. The devil was all over Jesus in, in that time. Jesus knows what it's like to be attacked by the devil. And if Jesus can be attacked by the devil, we can be attacked by the devil. One of Jesus' own disciples is demonized. The top of page 56. Jesus said, have I not chosen you the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Um, when the time came for Judas Iscariot to do the deed, it states that the devil entered into him. This was a personal disciple of Jesus, and Jesus made it clear that he was chosen as such. 
And he was a chosen, he was chosen as a disciple, and Jesus loved him and nurtured him just as he did the rest of his disciples. Yeah, yeah, well, God predetermined that, that this was going to happen. Whatever. I don't understand all that. I just know that Jesus loved Judas, and I know that the devil, uh, Judas gave the devil an opportunity, and the devil used it to the nth degree, and it, and it, it brought about the fulfillment of prophecy. So, Peter was sifted. Here's uh, Jesus' closest disciple. He was sifted. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail you. And when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So there's a sifting process. Sometimes God allows demonic attack upon us for a sifting process to happen. So that we go through a time of spiritual trial. But there's always an element. And the interesting thing about this is God never gives the devil free play. You know, you read Job, right? Uh, the story of Job goes that God's on his throne, the devil shows up in front of the throne, and he says, and God says, God actually interestingly brings attention to Job. Hey, devil, you see my, uh, my friend Job down here, my servant Job? The guy's amazing. Uh, you haven't tripped him up yet. What do you think of him? God, why are you bringing you know, attention to this? Well, the devil can't stand that kind of a challenge. He goes, yeah, well, you know what? You let me touch him. You let me touch his stuff. I'll show you what he's made of. God says, fine, you go ahead, you touch his stuff. The devil wipes Job out, economically and in every other way. And Job stands. Job doesn't betray uh, his calling. The devil shows back up again in heaven, and, uh, or before the throne of God, somehow. I don't know exactly how this happens, but uh, maybe he's got, uh, I don't know, some kind of video feed. I don't know. Stands up in front of God, and he says, well, and God says, well, he didn't fall. Yeah, well, you let me touch the man. You only let me touch his stuff. You let me touch the man, and I'll show you what he's made out of. And God says, okay, devil, um, you can touch the man, but you can't kill him. You can do everything but kill him. You can't do that. Okay. So the devil goes out, and he puts the hammers to Job. And he does the disease thing, and Job ends up scra scraping his boils, sitting in the middle of an ash heap. And you know an ash heap is a sterile environment, eh? Job goes to that place, and he starts lancing his own boils. It's just nasty. Then he has some well-meaning but misguided friends come and give him a, 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 a several days worth of bad advice. And at the end of the day, um, Elihu steps up. And Elihu says, you know what, Job? Job, there is a sin in you after all. Who here thought Job was sinless? There is a sin in you after all, Job. And he bluntly says it. Chapter 32, I think it is. He says, Job's sin is self-righteousness. He trumpets his own righteousness and accuses God of treating him unjustly. And then God shows up. And interestingly enough about God, God doesn't even explain why all this went on. God just says, do you know anyone like me, Job? Someone who holds the heavens where they are supposed to be and keeps the earth where it's supposed to be and built the mountains and the, everything else? Do you know anyone like me? And Job, at the end of the day, just says, Lord, I'm at your mercy. Forgive me. What happened there? Well, I'll tell you what happened there. God was aware that there was a, a weakness in Job. And God, who wanted to make Job more free, wanted that weakness, that self-righteous self arrogance out of the way. And so God allowed the devil to touch Job to bring that weakness to the surface. And in the moment that weakness was brought to the surface and Job repented of it, the Lord swept that clean from him and restored him double over to what he had before. Interestingly enough about the devil, the devil was never given free hand with Job. The only allowance God said, you can do this, but no more. The devil operated within defined parameters. So when God allows a sifting to happen, it's within defined parameters. The devil doesn't get a free hand. So, can believers give the devil a foothold? You know what? In the forgiveness seminar, we'll talk more about this. But Ephesians 4.26-32 says, Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, and don't give the devil a foothold. You can give the devil a foothold in your life, and one of the biggest ways that you can give the devil a foothold in your life is through unforgiveness. Who here has been betrayed? 
Who here has not been betrayed? You're going to be. You are going to be. God will walk all of us through deep places of betrayal. Why? Because he went there. 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, it talks about that kind of betrayal. It talks about how Jesus was betrayed and how he kept his mouth shut when he was being unjustly accused. And then it says, and to this too you were called. To know what he went through so that you can be used by him to minister to others who have been betrayed. We have to know some of these things so that we can empathize with those who have experienced it. So there are betrayals ahead of each of us. And if you have those betrayals, the only thing that, that, that matters is that you give them to Christ. Well, over on page 57, it says, Satan can effectively attack and destroy Christian leaders. Um, I went looking for that because, you know, again, you know, how can Satan demonize anyone? How can he really be effective? I mean, if I know Jesus, aren't I protected from all that? As long as you stand in Jesus. The problem comes is when we step out in our own strength. And even then, Jesus protects us and calls us back. But here we go. Listen to this. He talks about the overseer. That's a church leader. Must be above reproach. The husband and one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own funny. Now, manage his own fa family. Not control his own family. Okay? There's a difference between control and management. See that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must be, not be a recent convert, or he might become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He, might, he must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. What? The devil has laid a trap before the, the overseers. Who here knows of a pastor who's fallen? Spiritual leader who's fallen? People, the devil is laying traps for pastors and spiritual leaders everywhere. And they fall like flies. So, the devil is very effective in this. And, and that's why we're called to be on the, on the look, on the watch, you know? Um, so, the devil is actively involved in the entrapment of Christian leaders. And the idea of a trap carries with it the understanding of a binding. Uh, and it's more than a simple reference to emotional weakness or issues of poor character. The devil is actively involved. Uh, it's a warning about direct demonic attack on church leaders. Again, both and scenario. Remember, it's not just the devil. It's also the world and the flesh. And you remember with the world and the flesh, you, you can't cast those out. Those have to go to the cross in surrender to Jesus. Those are a discipleship issue. Your world and flesh, how you deal with those things, is a discipleship issue. What Jesus taught his disciples is how to walk situation by situation, offering him their inside and outside weaknesses, their inside and outside pressures, their world and their flesh. In every situation, he said, trust me with this. On the other hand, the devil, you can't disciple the devil. The devil has to be renounced and cast out if he's in a situation. Too many people spend their time trying to disciple the devil. You know what I mean? So, anyway. God allows some demonic attack for his own purposes. Revelations 2.10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil would put some, will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Anyone ever wonder what it would be like if you were put into that kind of place? I know some people that have suffered physical abuse or threats of death. I can't say that I've ever stood in the place that this is talking about, but some of us here will at some point. And Jesus says, be faithful. And that doesn't mean to perform. It means to be faithful. It means don't stop trusting me. See, this is the biggest challenge, folks. When we step into situations, can we trust that God is God there as well? You know, with the straying daughter or the straying son, in that place, can we trust God? You are here as well. Don't stop trusting him. Lord, my situation, my daughter, my spouse, my son, my beloved one is in your hands. Help me to keep my eyes on you. 
The devil wants your eyes off of Jesus. Well, defeated but still dangerous. <clears throat> Has Satan been defeated by the victory of Christ at Calvary? Yes. To this we say a de definite yes. Um, he declared the completion of his task from the cross in John 19.30. It is finished. Is the devil so completely bound he cannot attack or oppress believers who give him opportunity? Or non-believers? Scripture speaks clearly that the answer to this question is a resounding no. So he's defeated, but on the other hand, he can still do damage. Um, you know, it reminds me, I had an old uh, a World War II veteran in my first church, and he talked about, um, he talked about uh, um, some of the th uh, happenings in the Pacific Islands. You know, the war was completed, the surrender documents were signed, and then came the, um, the task of clearing out a bunch of these Pacific Islands that had soldiers on them still, uh, still who were out of contact with their command structure. And so there were dangerous places to go. And even though the war was over, there was still a mopping up operation to do. And he described it in some depth. That's the kind of picture we have here. Uh, victory is done. We are in the mopping up stages right now. And, and the interesting thing about Jesus is Jesus could just say, sweep everything aside, done with it all. But Jesus doesn't want to do that because he loves the people involved. He wants to save as many of us in the mopping up process as possible. And so he does that. There's danger of transference. Uh, here's that passage I told you about with the, um, the name, uh, the, the sons of Siva. Also, some of the Jewish exorcists who came from place to place attempted to name over those who had evil spirits the name of Jesus, saying, I command you or I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Siva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this, chief priest, and the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued them all and overpowered them, so they fled out of the house naked or wounded. Now listen to this. The evil spirit looks at him and says, Jesus, I know. I'm not, I got no questions about Jesus. Paul, I know. Why would he know Paul? Because Paul serves Jesus. Paul's identity was in Jesus. Paul's authority was from Jesus. But you, you got no relationship with Jesus. Come here. Whap. And he uh, leaps on him and beats the daylights out of them all. So transference <clears throat> sometimes happens. Uh, but it happens with people who try to take on the devil in their own strength. Uh, sometimes I get people saying, well, I don't want to be in a room where there's deliverance going on because the demon might jump onto me. Not if you're under Jesus' covering. So if you get in there, if you're in a toxic environment, spiritual environment, I only got one thing to say. Stay in the suit. You know? Don't go in there without the suit. Once you're in there, stay in the suit. So... Alrighty, let's close with a word of prayer and then we'll go. God Almighty, we tell you we thank you. We put everyone here under your blood. We thank you for what you're teaching us. Lord, lead us in uh, the walk that we have as we walk out of here. Use us. Father, show us. Speak to us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.